Luke 17. But first a few thoughts. We said last week that our hearts are smaller than we realize. That we need to awaken. And I gave you three words, if you remember. We need to awaken. The condition of most men, George MacDonald writes, um, seems to me a life in death. An unreal existence, pre-waking, empty, mere going on. That they do not feel it so does not mean that such is not the case. The day must come when such who have not awakened themselves to life as they were created to live will hide their faces in shame. God intends to, for man to, to really live, for man to be alive as he is alive. The first word we said was awake. We must awaken. The second word we said was story. I shared some of this story with some, some of the uh, journey group and Bible study women. But when I was 16, uh, I was the last of seven kids and I was a teenager in the house and the other kids had grown up and gone. And my mom and dad had aunts and uncles come over uh, for, a, I guess, a lunch of some sort on a Saturday. And this was like the last thing I wanted to be a part of. If you're 16, this is like death. And so, uh, but mom said, uh, you need to be there because you need to learn how to relate to adults. Actually, I was pretty parentified by then. But, uh, and you need to wear school clothes. Back in those days, you had church clothes, uh, school clothes, and then play clothes. And uh, so school clothes was the middle, you know, you wear slacks like this and loafers and, a, you know, a nice button shirt. And uh, so I sat with the adults, and <clears throat> I did my time, and we had the coffee, I guess, I, guess, I don't know what I had, and some tea, and then we all ate lunch together. Imagine this now, 12 adults and one 16-year-old. What was the condition going on inside of my heart? What was the bread of my soul doing? And baking. Getting browner and harder with every minute. We got to the end of lunch and uh, I said, well, I'll do the dishes, which wasn't going to be a big deal anyway, because I would have had to do the dishes anyway. It wasn't all that serving. But I could get out of the living room into the kitchen and I washed the dishes. And when I got it all done, I, my mom came back and said, well, you need to come and join the adults. And I said, uh, look, uh, I want to go see Rob Myers. He's a friend of mine. He's about five, you know, three to five miles down the road. I can get on my bike. I'll be there in a minute. She said, no, you need to come in and sit with us. So I said, fine, I'll sit with you. Well, if you're going to have that attitude, she said, then I'd rather you not come in. So I said, okay, but I couldn't go to see Rob Myers, so what was I going to do? Here's what I did. You tell me what you think. I thought it was rather ingenious at the time. I, I went out to a shed, got a hoe, and went across the field, and we had an acre of corn and melons and all that stuff, and it was my job to, to keep it weed-free. So I hoed furiously. My heart was seething. I was so angry. All the adults left, one by one, couple by couple, and I came in. Now, remember, I had dirt on my shoes and... A little bit on my pants, you know, all that stuff. I was angry in my heart. 
But you know, I'd gotten something done. And I'd poured all the rage of my heart into the ground, if you will. I felt better. And my parents actually were proud that I got something done. What did I learn by this? What I learned by this is the best thing to do is work harder. As you see, there's no disappointment in life that you can't handle by working harder. Now, is that really true? And really, was I doing goodness by obeying my parents? My question for you this morning, because just to finish that story a little bit, you can't see it, but I have a hoe super glued to my hand. I'm a workaholic. And I don't say that proudly. I make lists of things to do. I even write down things I've done so I can cross them off. That's pretty nuts. See, Jesus came to save us from our insanity. What is yours? What is the leprosy that is eating you alive and robbing you of life? Stealing from your heart, hardening your heart. All of us have one. We must learn to cry out like these men in the Bible. Lord, have mercy on us. Now I'm going to read the text. So the first thought this morning is, what is the leprosy that's eating you alive? It's probably the same thing that saved you. Let me get my glasses here. It happened that as he made his way toward Jerusalem, he crossed over the border between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered the village, ten men, all lepers, met him. They kept their distance but raised their voices, calling out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Taking a good look at them, he said, Go show yourselves to the priests. They went and, while still on their way, became clean. One of them, when he realized that he was healed, turned around and came back, shouting his gratitude, glorifying God. He kneeled at Jesus' feet, so grateful. He couldn't thank him enough. He was a Samaritan, a half-breed. Jesus said, we're not ten healed? Where are the other nine? Can, Can none be found to come back and give glory to God except this outsider? Then he said to him, get up, go on your way. Your faith has healed and saved you. What is eating you alive? That's the question this morning. It started a long time ago, and he means for you and I to cry out to him. And not just cry out to him, but to cry out to each other. Now, I don't know that I would expect that 16-year-old, me, to have gone to my parents at that moment. But what if I could have? What if I could have given them the bread of my soul, as angry and as rotten as it was? What if I could have said, you know, I'm so seething, I'm so angry, and I don't seem to make, be able to make myself good. I'm so angry at you. But I didn't do that. I would, instead of wanting them to love me, as I was, I wanted them to admire me, to think well of me. 
I've been doing that all my life. When my heart is bad, instead of bringing it forward on the light, putting it on the table, here's the bread of my heart, the broken bread as it is. I don't do that often. I work harder. I've hurt my wife. I've hurt my kids by doing this. I've been compulsive about it. What are you compulsive about? What have you been enslaved to? Jesus has set you free to be sure. But none of us are as free as we think. Only the really committed, I think I said this last week, let me say it again, only the really committed get to find out how much trouble they're really in and how great the good news is. Imagine a 16-year-old, who would imagine a 16-year-old being able to do this? Maybe you did, but I could not. Coming to his parents and saying, you know, I've murdered you in my, in my heart. I, I, I've, I've destroyed you. Instead, I hid it all underneath good works. I made myself appear to be good, and they thanked me for it. Today they're both in heaven. They see differently, I'm sure. The point is not to blame mom and dad, but simply to say all of us start out more fallen than we realize, more hidden than we realize. What is it that you would need to cry out to God about? Can you name it? Can you give me a half a page and clearly describe the cancer in you? The leprosy that is eating you alive. If you can't, how will you ever ask to be healed? You don't want to call something bad good. Well, what if you serve a lot, but you're never needy? How can that be? What if you're always perfect and you never fail? Some of us have hidden lives, tempers that we can't control. Who knows? Or do I just work harder to get control of my anger, my irritability, my impatience? You see, we must learn to be weak. Uh, One of the songs, I I wrote it down. Um, In in my weakness, I, I don't see it here. In my weakness, your love has made me strong or something like that. The problem is I don't do weakness. That's a great passage. I mean, it's a great song. But what if a part of me says, I am a do weakness? One time in my 30s, a, a man came, and at that point I had left the Air Force and I had gone full time in the ministry. And a man came who was much older than I, and he, he uh, came to the ministry, and we, I had worked really hard in terms of sharing Christ and following people up. And, and basically, his evaluation is, was, you failed. He was of the opinion that uh, anything subjective was sin. And so he wanted me to have uh, a certain uh, product, uh, so to speak, that uh, I did not have. And in his eyes, I failed. I hated that man. I hated him. And the way I expressed my hatred of him was I worked harder and I ran that day that he told me that I ran 14 miles hoeing corn. Is that a good solution? Is that the way to the cross? No. We said last week that struggle was necessary. Stumbling is inevitable and only suffering brings joy. 
But see, I've been committed to not suffering. I've only recently been learning to suffer. What is your leprosy? And as a side point, realize that your leprosy always gets played out in relationship. You can see it most clearly in relationship. We don't want to be... Uh, a friend of mine had told me a story about his daughter, and he, he had worn a full beard and a mustache, full beard. She was, uh, I think, 13 at the time. And he had shaved off his entire beard and left his mustache. And she came down for breakfast, and, and uh, he had just shaved it off. So he said to his 13-year-old daughter, Do you see anything different? She's looking at his face. No? Well, look again. Do you, see, do you see anything different? She goes, You grew a mustache. <laughs> Men walked with Jesus physically and never saw him. Apparently, you can live with another person and never see them. We don't want to be like in the movie, uh, this rather funny movie, uh, the son said so angrily at his dad, uh, you, you ruined my childhood. And he said, um, how could I? I was never there. <laughs> Your leprosy is always played out in relationship. Can you see it? And do your friends know it? Bruce, you're working too hard. What's going on? What's the bread of your soul doing? I say all this to say you must have a firm grasp. We must have a firm grasp. We come by these problems honestly. We leave them by becoming more honest. If we never know our leprosy well, we will never cry out for help. Help us. Have mercy on us, Jesus. He did. But we must cry out. He said to me, come to me, all who are weary and heavy hearted. And I will give you rest. But he goes on to say, as we read the story, we see that one man turned back. Nine were obedient. And Jesus' response to this one man was not only did he cry out to be healed, but he sought out the healer. Most of us are so asleep, most of the time, we don't even know that we're being eaten alive. But if I know that I'm being eaten alive, and he brings healing, and maybe I go to a group, maybe I go to counseling, maybe I see a mentor, maybe I get help uh, through reading the scriptures, and that's great, and that's needed, and we need to pursue that. We want to be healed in our hearts. But when does the healer become more important than the healing? To one man, a Samaritan. Jesus' expectation is that all would be there. And what he says to this man is, you are healed. You're healed. I thought ten people were healed. Apparently only one was truly healed. We sang it in the song. Your presence, experience, experiencing God's love, Tom said, face to face, 
Not the principles of God that comfort me, as good as that is, but the person of Jesus, the person of God. Apparently, we're meant to be born with a certain gangrene, with a certain leprosy, with a certain cancer of the heart. We must learn to cry out, but then we must seek the deeper knowing of him. 10% is not a very good number. One out of ten. That should sober us. George MacDonald says this, Let us in all the troubles of life remember that our one lack is life. What we need is more life, more of the life-giving presence in us, making us more and more largely alive. When most oppressed, when most weary of life, as our unbelief would phrase it, let us remember that it is in truth the inroad and presence of death we are weary of. When most inclined to sleep, let us arouse ourselves to live. Of all things, let us avoid the false refuge of a weary collapse, a hopeless yielding to things as they are. It is the life in us that is discontented. We need more of what is discontented, not more of what is contented in that regard. I need to know more clearly what it is that's ruining and destroying the condition and heart of my, of, of my heart, this, the climate of my soul. Work has been an enemy in that regard. Doing things well has been an enemy. Maybe pleasing others for you. Maybe always being giving or always being peaceful. We could list a number of things. Ask your friends to help you. What do you see? What's the leprosy that you see in me? But then secondly, we said, do I encounter him? John 17 says this. He says to, of Jesus, Jesus speaking in the priestly prayer of John 17, he says, The weight that you have given me, I have given to them. What did he mean? The word, the, he said glory, but the, the word glory really means weightedness. What was he saying? We certainly know that the disciples at this time, John 13, 14, 15, 16, this whole soliloquy, didn't end in a group hug. The disciples didn't get it. Not yet. Something bigger and deeper had to happen for them. They had to realize that Jesus loved them when they could not love him. Do you say that to your mate? Do you say that to your friends? There is something that gets in the way of my love for you. It's leprosy. It started a long time ago. It's not your fault. I would love your help. And you do and you say all those sorts of things, not to get things straightened out, as good as that is, but in the hopes to find Jesus. Where the healer is more important than the healing. I'm going to show you a clip in a second. But I want you to be a man or woman of the deeper voice. Another story. Margaret and I were going on a date. Uh, the first time, I, the first story I told you was a man that hid his broken bread, hid his burnt 
sizzling, angry bread, right? We were going on a date, and of course, remember, I told you I like to get things done. So I was, you know, thinking and thinking about this. We were talking on the way to this little restaurant, and we got out of the car. And as we got out of the car, I'm, I'm walking to the restaurant, and I realize at some point I'm walking alone. We're on a date. So I turn around, and Margaret, who has very much always been the peacemaker, is still sitting in the car. This is very embarrassing for me. Even though there's nobody looking at me, I am full of shame and baking bread. I'm really angry. I come back to the car, and I, I, take the, I look through the window, and there's Margaret smiling, because we're on a date, right? And I opened the door and I said, would you, through clenched teeth, would you like me to open the door for you? <laughs> now, why would you do that if you wanted to have a good time with your husband? See, why would you do such a foolish thing if you wanted to be a wonderful date? You see, leprosy can be anywhere, anytime. It always gets played out in a relationship. As we're walking to the restaurant, I said to her, I think you did a good thing, but I'm, I'm so angry at you. We spent the next half an hour, and I can tell you what I received from my wife was grace. It changed the whole evening. I've never forgotten it. Somebody asked me recently, what keeps you awake spiritually? I mean, ultimately God, of course. But before all of that, failure. None of my achievements, none of my successes have kept me awake. If anything, more often than not, they put me back to sleep. I'm going to show you a clip. It's one of my favorite clips. And then we'll end and I'll pray. But let me set up the clip. So we'll need to turn out the lights in a second. John Newton was a man who wrote Amazing Grace. And if you know the background, he was a slave trader. And if you've watched the movie, which really does follow the story of his life, he's kind of a, the, the back story. William Wilberforce is wanting to get rid of slavery in England. So he comes to his mentor, and I believe the man that led him to Christ. But I'm not positive about that, but somebody told me that. And he went to his mentor, John Newton, an older man who's in the the sanctuary, and he's mopping the floor, and he looks like burlap on him. And he, he says, John, help me get rid of the slave trade in England. You of all men can speak to this. And Newton was angry. John Newton was angry, and he angrily says, No, I'm not your man. I have 20,000 ghosts. I have 20,000 ghosts in my head. I'm trying to get them out. You see, John Newton, like all of us, and he was a good man, wanted to leave that world behind and become a better man. But see, becoming better is not the same as learning to love. Did you know that? Improving in your spiritual life, as good as that may be, is not the point. And it's hopefully not the point between you and your children, or you and your spouse, or you and your friends. 
We know that and we are knowing that. Wilberforce, much later, after doing much work in England, comes back to him. I think just to visit him. At this point, Newton is much older, John Newton, and he is blind. Remember last week we talked about the importance of story. He's dictating his story to a scribe who's writing it out. That's where we'll pick it up. When the slaves are flogged on the wharf, their arms are tied to a hook on a crane and weights of 56 pounds applied to their feet. The crane is raised so that their feet barely touch the ground. The slaves are then whipped with ebony bushes, comma, to let out the congealing blood. I don't hear the nip scratching the page. We have company, sir. John. It's me, Wilbur. Leave it. They only told me your sight was fading. Well, now it's faded altogether. I never did things by half. Scott decided I'd seen enough. So it's true. What's true? Writing your account. Uh I wish I could see your face. How are you looking? Same. Still too thin. A little fatter lately. Oh, she feeds you well then, this wife of yours? She's given me an appetite. Uh, An appetite to change things. This is my confession. You must use it. Names. Ships records, ports, people, everything I remember is in here. Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour. You must publish it. Blow a hole in their boat with it. Damn them with it. I wish I could remember all their names. My 20,000 ghosts, they all have names. Beautiful African names. We call them with just grunts, noises. We were apes. They were heroes. I 
I once was blind, but now I see. Didn't I write that too? Yes, you did. Well, now at last it's true. Now go, we'll go. We've lots of work to do, you and I. It takes our whole life to become like Jesus, a man of sorrow, who took on to himself, who was affected by, who was literally physically destroyed by our sin. Would it be any different for us? We must be people who not only cry out to be healed from our leprosy, John wanted to be healed. He didn't, want, he didn't want to be a slave to it. He wanted to be a new man. But healing is not the point. It only brings us to Him. The healer is the point. Then we weep. And instead of trying to be better and trying to get 20,000 ghosts out of my head, maybe 20,000 pictures of porn, maybe 20,000 stories or, or memories that I have, I'm wanting to remember them and to become brokenhearted by them. The harm done to me, the sin done to me, the sin that I do, they always go together. Imagine a boy that could go to his mom and dad, and I will one day. I wish I had given you my heart, not my hands. I especially wish I had given you the part of me that couldn't make myself good. I couldn't make myself better by harder work. Let me pray for us.